The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 6. This is the call of Isaiah. This is one of the most powerful uh, passages in the Bible. And it's where it's the origin of the trifold holy, which you see pop up again in Revelation, and which we, when we do this, when we sing the Sanctus, uh, the, we say holy three times in honor of the Trinity. It shows up here first in Isaiah 6, though. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The epistle reading is 1 Corinthians 14. This will be the sermon text. And you'll notice too, so uh, the epistle readings have been going through, in the lectionary have been going through 1 Corinthians and uh, pretty consecutively. And then you get to 1 Corinthians 14, and it lops off the first 12 verses, and then the back half. Next week, the reading will jump to 1 Corinthians 15. So during the sermon today, we'll talk about a, big, a bigger chunk of the chapter than just uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 12b through 20. Let me read it now to you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can anyone who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving, since he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man's not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, be adults. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. 
But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, if you could turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and we'll look at a text bigger than the text that's in the bulletin. If you need help, it's on page 855 in the Pew Bibles. So uh, chapter 14 is pretty much about speaking in tongues. And uh, I'm not going to talk too much this morning about like tongues specifically, uh, because Paul, what I want to talk about is behind Paul's discussion of tongues are bigger, broader, more general issues that he's trying to grapple with that are behind the surface issue of speaking in tongues. It's like, uh, you know, if you have to make a specific decision, think about like if, you, if you're deciding to move or not, like you're making a decision, should I move or not? What you're going to do is you're not just going to make that decision in a vacuum. There's a lot of stuff that's going on behind that decision, like am I moving to a better job? Uh, am I moving to a better climate? Am, uh, am I running away from something? Am I moving to something that I, that I want in my life? These are all like bigger, more general issues about your life as a whole, out of which will come the specific decision to, to move or not. Um, that's just kind of what's going on here. So Paul's talking about speaking in tongues, but there's like, what I'm going to do is point out three broader issues behind the issue of speaking in tongues. And they're, they're more foundational, but they're also more general. If you're in the mood to talk about speaking in tongues, this might be a little bit disappointing for you. But like I said a couple of weeks ago, come downstairs to Bible study afterwards and we can, if you want to ask about the specific issue of, you know, is speaking in tongues for today or not, we can talk about that here. But let me just say this. Paul just assumes that speaking in tongues is a legit spiritual gift that people have, that he has, and that he uses. But he also insists that speaking in tongues is the type of gift that can glorify yourself if not used appropriately. That's kind of in general what he's doing with tongues. But anyway, let's get to those three big issues if I can. So the first one is, uh, let's read verses 1 through 5 if, if I can, and then we... Um, We'll talk about the first one. Follow the way of love. I remember chapter 13, which we talked about last week, is about love. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Now, by prophecy, what Paul doesn't mean is foretelling the future. In in the Bible, 95% of prophecy, whether it's Moses or Isaiah or Jesus, is not foretelling the future. Most of it is just speaking God's truth. Most of it is just repent or you'll perish Trust in God. Every once in a while, you'll get something like, you know, uh, Jeremiah's, in 70 years, Cyrus is going to send exiles back to rebuild Jerusalem. Every once in a while, you'll get a prediction of the future. That's like 5% of the, of the total quantity of prophecy. What Paul means by prophecy is just speaking truth out loud. The gift of saying, what is God's truth to people? This is the kind of gift we should, we should aspire to. Verse 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. So if you're speaking in a tongue, I think it's clear from 1 Corinthians 14, the rest of the New Testament, uh, the gift of tongues is speaking in a language. It's a real language that people know 
but you, the speaker in the tongues, don't know the language. And it's possible that the people you're talking to don't know the language either. But it is a legit human language. But you just don't know what it is. The Holy Spirit is speaking it through you. If uh, Back in verse 2. If, for any, if anyone speaks in a tongue, they do not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks God's truth out loud in a language that can be understood, speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Now, so uh, some people, for instance, John MacArthur says that Paul's being sarcastic here, like you shouldn't edify yourself, like you're building yourself up. I actually don't think, reading all 1 Corinthians 14, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I don't think, I think he's saying this is a good thing. It, it, it is a way to be closer to God. It is a way for yourself to be built up in faith. However, there's a higher priority, and that is the church. But he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather you have prophecy. I would rather have you prophesy. I'm sorry. He who prophesies is greater than, than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. Okay, so what, what's the larger issue behind this discussion here? The larger issue you know, behind the discussion of tongues is... Is Christianity a private religion? Is it meant to benefit you personally? Or is it a corporate religion? Is it meant to benefit us publicly? And you guys, I mean, you already know where I'm going with this. You've heard enough of the Bible to know that the answer is going to be, of course, it's both, right? It's not a false either or. But it's surprising, is it not, how often we fall into that trap of thinking, so my my relationship with God is the main thing in Christianity. I don't really need the church. Or like, I go to church all the time. I don't know, you know, I maybe read my Bible every once in a while. I don't really pray a whole lot, but I go to church. And to, 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 to not have a biblical balance between Christ for us privately and Christ for us as his family. So, you know, to, just to reiterate this, for those of you who are a little bit unclear about this, the private benefits of Christianity are extremely important at the risk of sounding legalistic. Like, you guys should be reading your Bibles all the time. You should be letting God speak to you in his word. You should have an active prayer life. And, of course, all these are struggles, right? I mean, it's it's going to be a roller coaster, just like any relationship, especially with God, though. It's going to be a roller coaster of sometimes you're locked in, sometimes you're having great devotions, and sometimes you're not. And if, also, I should say, it's not a rule. Like, if you have your devotions, that makes you a good Christian any more than showing up here at church makes you a good Christian, even if it is... I see outside, and you guys are especially religious for showing up here this morning. It's not a rule. It doesn't make you religious. But like any relationship, you have to spend time with the other person. That will include what Paul describes as praying in the Spirit. Now, not all of us speak in tongues. He says this at the end of chapter 12. Not everybody, he actually says specifically, not everybody has the gift of tongues, not everybody has the gift of healing. But we all will pray in the power of the Holy Spirit at times, and sometimes that will be so intense because the Spirit will be praying through you in such a way that your role in the prayer becomes minimal. Now, that's like major league level. And I'll be honest with you, I don't experience that a whole lot myself. But that's actually something that Scripture describes, and it's kind of a goal. Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It calls out with our spirit, Abba, Father. Later on, this is crazy, listen to this. Romans 8 says, the Spirit, we don't know what to, we don't know what to pray for, it says. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit within us, intercedes for us 
crying out with groanings that can't be uttered. We don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit inside of us is praying through us to the Father. So one of the things that prayer does is it unites you to God. So you pray to the Father. You're praying in Jesus' name because the only way you can go to the Father is in Jesus' name. And like Romans 8 describes, the Holy Spirit is praying through you. You are connected in a super, super intimate way with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when you're praying. This is important. This should be a vital part of your lives, this praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis, I don't know if this is related or not, but I'll throw it at you. C.S. Lewis, in his small book, Letters to Malcolm, which there is really no Malcolm. It's an imaginary guy that he's having this conversation with. But the book's primarily about prayer. And he says in this book, the best kind of prayer is the prayer that you pray without words. You pray for somebody, and all that you have is the image of them in your head, and you're emotionally crying out to the Lord for them in a Romans 8 kind of way. The spirit with inexpressible, unintelligible, emotional grappling with this person or this situation. But then Lewis goes on to say, too, this doesn't always happen. And when it does happen, the temptation is for it to become a sort of like personal idol that you experience this sort of power in prayer. Nevertheless, it is the goal. Your private life should be one that's engaged in, if you're not speaking in tongues, and Paul's not telling you to speak in tongues here, at least edifying yourself by being connected to God in this intimate way in the Word and in prayer. Okay, but this does not mean that the public life of faith is not important. Paul insists in the five verses that we read that prophecy is more important than this intimate, private relationship with God, which is important, but the payout is this. I mean, look, so to go back to 1 Corinthians 12, Sometimes we boil Christianity down to what we believe. If I ask, if I ask you, what is Christianity? And we say Christianity is the historical reality that the Son of God became a human being so that he could die and rise from the dead. And I believe that. Okay. That's good as far as it goes. But if it's actually not embodied, if it doesn't become enfleshed in our relationship with each other, if it's just something that's happening up here or in here for you, then it's not actually becoming worthwhile. This is the point of 1 Corinthians 12, is that you know the Spirit in relationship. You know the gifts of the Spirit in relationship with each other. You experience the power of the confession that Jesus is Lord when you have community with other believers. And so, yes, God saved you individually, you. But God didn't save you just individually, you. He saved all of us. And he didn't save all of us as individual yous. He saved us as one corporate body of Christ. So a false dichotomy, right? Your private relationship with God is important. Your public relationship with God is important as well. Let's move on to the second thing if we can. Uh, Look over at verse 13. Uh, For this reason, Paul says, uh, anyone who speaks in a tongue, this isn't our reading for today, by the way. Anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So you can see there's overlap with what we're doing. Paul says, my spirit. Now, he doesn't say the Holy Spirit here. He says, my spirit, the inside part of me, the non-cognitive part of me that responds to the universe, the part of me in which my emotions and my will dwell, the part of me where, you know, the psalmists talk about rejoicing in spirit, where Saul is described as uh, being down in spirit. These are emotional words. He, Paul is saying, that your emotions, the inside part of you, 
can pray, but also your mind should be praying as well. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my mind is fruitful. So what shall I do? Verse 15, here's the goal for Paul. I will pray with my spirit. I'll pray with that internal, non-cognitive, emotional grappling with the universe, or in this case, grappling with God. But I will also pray with my mind. I'll pray with understanding as well. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. So, this is our second sort of antinomy, this sort of like false either or. This relationship between intellect and emotions, between what we know is true and what we experience emotionally in our relationship with God. Which one is most important? Which one overrides the other? And you guys know, I mean, the church has struggled with this for a long time. A lot of people will say, I don't really like that church because they're just, it's like all emotions and there's not a whole lot of doctrine going on and it's kind of touchy feely. I mean, you'll hear that sometimes, right? Also, you'll hear about churches. I've heard this from a lot of you about churches that you've come from. The church that I came from, I mean, they taught truth, but it was just like cold and dead in there and nobody really, it was like people stood up and sang. You can quote from Paul. Some of you could actually unintentionally even quote from Paul. I mean, they sang with their mouths kind of, but they don't, really sing with their spirits, with their emotion. And Paul is saying, you have to do both. And it's hard for us. This is a little bit, uh, I apologize. So you guys who showed up in an ice storm, you guys are the, like the smart ones, so I can do this. T.S. Eliot wrote a paper in the 1920s where he argued that since the Enlightenment, um, there was amongst humans what he called the dissociation of sensibility. You can forget that word. What he What he means is, is that humans, since the modern era, since the 1600s, we have lost the ability to think and feel at the same time. And so think about modernism. Think about, uh, think about like, if you know anything about music, think about like Mozart. It's very formulaic. It's very mathematical. Think about modern architecture. Like Georgian, it's very, Georgian architecture, it's very, very balanced and symmetrical. You can't have a, you know, you can't have a building with three windows right here and two windows right here. It has to make sense. Think about the poetry of Alexander Pope, where it's going to rhyme. Every two lines is going to rhyme, and it's going to be the same five beats in every line. That's modernism. It's very, very logical. You know, Descartes comes along and says, reality can only, truth can only be accessed by logic, by reason, by your brains. You have to figure things out. Lutheran Orthodoxy and the rest of Protestant Orthodoxy springs out of this. That religion is fundamentally logical truths that you can systematize. And you can write doctrine books, systematic theologies that make sense of God and his word. I'm not saying that's bad, by the way. But what happens is, in the 1800s, is there's a rejection of this because people are like, actually, that's cold and empty. And we can think all we want, but we want to do more. And so you get romanticism, which pushes against that. Think about the poetry of like Wordsworth and Keats and Shelley or the music of Brahms or Beethoven, which is turgid and emotional, and it gets faster and slower and louder and softer. It's a reaction to this. It's like this return to feelings. We want to feel stuff. And uh, the life of the mind, okay, that's fine, but it's not really real because you're not, it's not authentic. You're not feeling it. And you have these pushbacks off and on. And the Christian church, like I said, grapples with these. And the church, the world watches this grapple with these, and it thinks... You know, it's critical of whatever whatever side of the pendulum that we swing to, it's swinging on its own pendulum and being critical. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, Tim Keller talks about this. Uh, Aldous Huxley 
a famous uh, British genius weirdo. Uh, in the 1920s, he was part of the Bloomsbury group, where they were arguing that Christianity, we need to get rid of it because it's not logical enough. It doesn't make any sense. It's nonsense. If Huxley famous, famously said, uh, I, I read an a, a interview with him one time where he was asked, like if, God, if you meet God, if God does exist someday, which Huxley said he didn't, if you meet God someday and he says, Aldous, why didn't you believe in me? What would you say? He said, and he said, what I would say to him is, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Like Christianity's too feely. The people over there, they're feeling all the feels, but they don't really, they're logical. They make no sense at all. Well, by the 1960s, right before he died, Huxley had completely shifted. He was experimenting with LSD. She actually uh, died on an LSD trip in 1963. And he's uh, experimenting with LSD. And he is still critical of Christianity, but now his criticism uh, is completely different. I didn't, I mean, I knew about Huxley. I didn't realize this until I uh, read Keller about this. That now he's completely shifted and he said, Christianity is bogus because it's too cold. It's too systematic and logical. There's no, and see, so he's, he's exploring, you, you know, psychedelic drugs and uh, alternate states of consciousness. And he's like, there's nothing, Christianity is just empty and cold and it's just a system. That's all it is. And we want power and feeling. And you have to realize that the world is bouncing back and forth between these pendulums. And so we cannot. We have to sing with our minds and sing with our spirits. And when we say things like, or we think things like if you come to church and you're worshiping and you actually start to get emotional, that's like, that's like your carnal flesh speaking. You need to tamp that down. If you're not feeling anything, if you don't want to be a Christian and you're still a Christian, that makes God super happy. No, God wants us to sing with our spirit and sing with our minds. There's no, um, there's, there's, it's a false either or, right? There's a, we need to keep that, both of these. Doctrine is super important. The historical facts of Christianity are super important. But you should be overwhelmed emotionally by these things. Look, so the doctrine is the most important. There are things that you can be overwhelmed emotionally by. The Cardinals winning, for instance. Delicious food. The birth of a child. The doctrine is the most important thing. But that doctrine should should produce emotions. In fact, think of it like this if you want to. Emotions should function as a sort of a warning gauge that you are really grappling with the eternal God as he comes to us in Scripture. Like, if you can hang out with your kids, there are times with your kids when you're going to be like, I just have to deal with this. But if you're always like, if you're never emotionally connected to your kids, there's something wrong. That's a warning gauge that should be going off inside of your head saying, you need to check yourself. You need to get right with God because you should be loving your kids. It's the same thing with your relationship with God. If you're not actually feeling the power of God in your life, sometimes it comes and it goes. And like I said, there's other things that will make you feel a power too. I'm not talking about those. But if you're not actually feeling, if you're not actually singing with your spirit sometimes, that's a warning gauge that maybe you're a little bit disconnected from the Almighty God. So uh, sing with our spirit, sing with our minds emotionally and cognitively involved in the faith. Okay, last one. This will go faster because I know I'm going long here. Look at verse 21. Paul's quoting from Isaiah 28, and he says, In the law it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, actually in Isaiah 28 he's talking about Assyrians who are coming and punishing Israel for her sin. 
Through, the, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me. Says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, I, I know that sounds like speaking in tongues is beneficial for unbelievers. That's not what he means by sign. He means a sign of judgment. Speaking in tongues is a sign of judgment for unbelievers. Why do I say that? Because the quote from Isaiah, that's what it means. People with strange tongues and foreign languages are going to come, and you're still not going to believe, right? You're still not going to be turned. You're not going to listen to me even then. Paul's saying, even when you speak in tongues, people aren't going to listen to the Lord. It's just a sign of judgment on them, that they're not getting to hear the gospel plainly. Prophecy, however is a sign of judgment for believers. When you hear prophecy, when you got hear God's word preached, he's saying to the Corinthians, not to me and you, he's saying to the Corinthians, you are being judged because you're hearing God's truth and you've been rejecting it in the unfaithful ways that you've been, been being the church. Read the first part of 1 Corinthians and all the ways that they've been falling away. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? I mean, wouldn't they say, look, if unbelievers come in here and we're speaking in tongues, wouldn't they say, these people are nuts? They aren't going to come to faith. But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in, verse 24, while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Now, here's the third antinomy. Is church for evangelism? to reach the lost, or is it for the edification of believers? Is it for building up the body? And now I saved this one for last. It's the shortest one too, but I saved this one for last because we've read texts where Paul's emphasizing both. Prophesy, he says, because that's the way that believers are built up in the faith. When they hear intelligible words, it's five intelligible words is better than a ton of speaking in tongues because then the church is being built up in faith. And then at the end of the section, he says, also prophesy because that's the way unbelievers hear and understand the gospel. Again, this is a false either or. To say that church is for evangelism or that church is for just the edification of believers is a false either or. It should be for both. Now, we believers have a problem. And that is, is that sometimes we don't talk about the faith in a way that would be understandable to unbelievers. Every subgroup, every small culture has its own code and language. It's fine. To say something like justification by faith is shorthand that you all get. But we also need to not say words to unbelievers that put them off. Now this takes, you know, you ever talk to somebody who knows anything about computers? And so I, I actually, this past couple of weeks, I've been talking to uh, uh, my tax lady, my CPA, and I will tell her, like, I don't have a clue what you're saying. She and she will have to try and work to not use lingo to explain taxes to me. Because when she just uses the words, which make perfect sense to her, why don't you get it? I don't understand it because I'm not in that world. We need to think through that process as we talk to unbelievers. I need to think through that process as I preach to you guys, understanding that this morning might be a little bit different. But frequently, in fact, every other Sunday, we frequently have groups of unbelievers in here who will be put off by the code, who will be pushed away and disenfranchised by language that they don't understand. And I, Paul, saying, I need to speak in words that are accessible to them, that they can hear and say, okay, that makes sense. The God of the universe is writing a story that I'm a part of too. All these three are things, these are all false antinomies that we shouldn't fall into, right? I mean, 
So what Paul is saying, just to sum up, is you individually are important. Also, church, all of us, you, plural, yous, are also important. What you believe in your head is true, is important, but how you feel about that in worship and in your private life, also important. Edification of the saints is important. Evangelism, also important. Why is this fundamental reason? Because Jesus died for you, and Jesus also died for us. Jesus died for your emotions, and he died for your brain. Jesus died for believers, and Jesus also died for those unbelievers whom he's calling to himself. Jesus died to save all of us, every single part of us. And we have to live in that whole-bodied relationship to him, all the, not just whole-bodied individually, but whole-bodied, whole-bodied of Christ for his glory. Okay, amen. Let's pray. Thank us for being good to us, and we pray that you would use the power of your word to mold us and shape us, not, in ju- not just into the individuals who love you, who have strong emotions of rejoicing and fear and love and trust in you, but also as a church that believes faithfully in your gospel, fears, loves, and trusts you, and desires to speak intelligibly for the edification of each other and for the salvation of unbelievers. This will be a work that only you can do in our lives, and so we in advance are going to give you the glory for doing it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.